You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. of pure, unadulterated, maddening ecstasy. You've never seen John filling the screen quite like this. And introducing Farrah Fawcett's look-alike, Rhonda Jo Petty, the hottest new star to ever hit the screen since Linda Lovelace. Dusty is coming to this theater soon. Have you ever been in love before, Frankie? Just once. Little Orphan Dusty is a story of a great love between two people trapped in a triangle of hate, lust, and tender love. Watch John lead Orphan Dusty into a life of new experiences. A life beyond her wildest imagination. Will their love survive? Take it off. I'm gonna call the sheriff. No, don't call. It's ugly. I'm ugly. What did you do that for? Don't do that. Watch their love grow and grow and grow. But is it big enough to overcome all obstacles? She's what? Four months pregnant. Well, what do you think, baby? You like it? Is their love strong enough to survive? Can their marriage last? Take it all, Mama. 
Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Join me once again is Ms. Rain Alexander. Hi, it's good to be back. Also back in the booth after far too long is Ms. Jill Nelson. Hello, thanks for having me back, Mike. Our exploration of adult films continues with a look at Little Orphan Dusty. The credits say the film was co-directed by Bob Chin and Jakov Jacoby, though there's a little controversy in that. Released in 1978, the film stars Rhonda Joe as the titular Dusty, a woman attacked by a gang of bikers who eventually is rescued by John Holmes as Frankie an artist who tries to help Dusty after her traumatic rape. Unfortunately, those bikers are really darn persistent. We're going to be spoiling the film as we go along, as well as the sequel. So if you haven't seen either of the Little Orphan Dusty films, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So Jill, if memory serves, I asked you a long time ago for some movies we should cover. You suggested The Scent of Heather, which we did a few years ago, and Little Orphan Dusty. What about this film made you want to talk about it? Just thinking about Santa Heather, there, there's such a contrast between these, these two films, and particularly in, in the realm of the acting ability. Little Orphan Dusty struck me when um, we had reviewed it for our biography on John Holmes, and he is one of the stars in the film. And one of the reasons that it really uh, sort of um, struck me is because of the fact that most of the films that we had reviewed for the biography were very lighthearted. They were very gentle in nature, kind of fun-loving, laid-back sort of pictures, where this one was different because of the theme of the, the rape and, and the fisting scenes that, that appear throughout. So it really struck me because I didn't really, I, I had no knowledge of adult films before I had taken on the, uh, the biography, the co-writing project. So this really intrigued me. And I wanted to delve into it a little bit. So it would really be considered a roughie, an exploitation film, comparatively speaking to most of the other films that, that we had screened. And just the title itself, Little Orphan Dusty, it suggests to me a woman who has a school-aged woman, which even at the time in the 70s when it was made, porn was, of course, illegal. But anything that intimated um, sex with underage Anybody under the age of 18 was completely taboo, and it was it was not typically done. A lot of these films, as you know, went to theater releases, but these types of films, and Little Orphan Dusty in particular, um, was pulled from a lot of theaters in, in several states, not only because of the, the fisting and, and rape scene, but also because of the title and what it suggests. And I believe I did read later that the title was changed to Dusty, and also Jaws of Death, just so that they could get away with showing it in the theaters without sort of the ramifications of what they were doing. So it is a roughy exploitation film, though not roughy in the sense where the victim really exacts revenge, because as you know, Dusty is a little bit compliant with some of the things that are going on in the film, which is 
typical when you think of the the men that were directing the films or producing the films and women were always compliant. Definitely the caliber is, is not good quality. The acting is not, you know, anything to write home about. It's a gritty film. But I like the fact that it's tempered with erotica. The scenes, I think, um, especially with Rhonda and John, uh, Frankie and Dusty, um, are quite lovely. They're not aggressive. They're artful, I think, for, you know, considering uh, that it was a two-day shoot. There wasn't a lot, it wasn't a big budget film. You know, and actually it did, and Rhonda will tell you if she joins us, this did actually really establish Rhonda as a cult hero, especially among the the roughy biker sort of audience. This really kind of set her up for that. Yeah. So that that's really what I what I guess what compelled me to suggest it to you as, as a film to take a look at. And Rain, had you ever encountered this one before? I hadn't. And uh it's, you know, kind of fascinating to me that I hadn't in past lives and my, my past artistic practice, I had done some deep dives into like plot driven porn, you know, and I think this would have been such an amazing thing for me to have found. I'm also the thing, the thing that really interested me about watching it for this podcast is that I am, I guess I am now a Spalding Gray completist as a performance artist. Spalding Gray has always been kind of one of my North stars and, you know, and I'd had an awareness that he had some history in the the adult industry, but it just never encountered. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess this is my chance to try and pick him out of the crowd <laughs> in the party scene, which I was unable to do um, at first. Uh, but you know, thanks to tracking down through the Rialto report in particular, uh, I was able to pretty much identify him in the print. I think. I mean, it's kind of what I used to think of as what a typical porn movie would be in some ways and then in others completely different. So I think it's the, the level of acting that you're talking about, Jill also the, how often they have sex and any excuse to have sex that the plot isn't as heavy as I've seen in other films. I mean, last uh, next week we're going to be talking about blonde ambition where there's some sex scenes, but they really feel very motivated. Uh, it's very funny that you say that they, the whole idea of little orphan dusty possibly shining a light on uh, underageness. I mean, last week we talked about young, hot and nasty teenage cruisers, which I'm surprised that that film uh, title ever made it out there. It probably got changed also at some point. Because I want to say that Annie the Musical was hitting Broadway in 77, so they're probably playing on Little Orphan Annie at the same time as they're playing on Little Orphan Dusty. And then also this whole thing about the poster where Rhonda Joe has a passing look like Farrah Fawcett, and they just took that Farrah Fawcett poster, the famous Farrah Fawcett poster that so many people had up on their walls when they were younger, and just recreated that and slapped Little Orphan Dusty on here and then just had, you know, Farrah Fawcett, Rhonda Joe Petty, the Farrah Fawcett lookalike <laughs> in Little Orphan Dusty and just played on that so heavy. And it's just amazing. There's a great article on the Rialto Report where they talk about not only that, but then another Jacoby film where he basically recreated uh, Cheryl Ladd as uh, I, I can't remember. It ta I think it was Taxi Girls, possibly. Yeah, it, it was like a after. Cheryl Ladd yes, pose. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's like this guy was obsessed with Charlie's Angels. It was amazing. <laughs> 
you can't mess with success, right? Mm. I mentioned some of the controversy around the directing of the film because I read Bob Chin's uh, autobiography, uh, which is fantastic, and he doesn't really have anything nice to say about Jacoby. And it feels like he really got the shit end of the stick when it came to directing. And basically, it feels like Jacoby was like, well, you get along with John Holmes, you do it, and gave him nothing else. I think, too, and I, I went back and took a look at... Um the interviews that I'd done with Rhonda and Bob. And I think the other thing too is, I don't know if this is true, but Bob said that Jacoby wasn't that comfortable shooting the sex scenes or the, or the fisting scenes. So he said, Bob, you've got experience, you do it. John was developing a reputation around that time as being a bit of a prima donna. So he felt that Bob could handle him. That was really the pinnacle of Holmes's career, really almost um, around that time. I mean, he was the highest paid performer probably at that time. And um, I remember somebody said to us one time, his worst film would outsell Seika's best film. And that was that was really saying something. So he was a very much desired performer at that time. And I guess they figured pairing him with this Farrah Fawcett lookalike would be a winner at the box office. And it was. I do believe it, it won best film at the erotica awards or something i thought i read that in 78 so we'll have to double check that but i think it might have what was that relationship like between director bob chin and john holmes in the early days it was a very good relationship john was very professional in the beginning he wanted to make money he was there because you know he he had worked as a gaffer a little bit but he was getting to be sort of known around the adult circles as being a stud and he was just looking for work and they kind of clicked in a weird way. They were they had a very odd relationship, but they did. They did hang out. They weren't super close friends, but they were friends. Bob even has said to this day that he does miss him. You know, he, he cared about him as a friend, even when he went over the edge and, and became so out of control. But they had a very unique relationship. There was a lot of respect there between them. And I think John would have gone to the ends of the earth for Bob. He really respected Bob. He really respected Bob a great deal. So, but then, you know, when, when the Coke got in, into the fray, then Bob couldn't deal with him anymore. And that was really the end of their relationship around 79, their professional relationship and, and their personal relationship too. I can really tell that this had a very low budget and a very quick shoot. Just the production values are really strained with this it feels like we've got what maybe just a few locations um we start off with dusty walking through the woods and she encounters this biker gang and it took me a long time to figure out how many bikers were in this gang i just i kept seeing like two motorcycles i'm like wait no no there's three motorcycles is that a woman on the back of one of these bikes? I can't really tell, but yeah, it seems like it's what four men and one woman and they gang rape Rhonda in the woods, cut off all of her clothes. And yeah, you've mentioned a few times there are what three fisting scenes in this film. And one of them is Rhonda doing it herself, but the first one is this female biker. These rape scenes, man. Wow. Very, very rough and not sexy, not sexy at all. I feel like that was one of the really interesting parts about this to me is that 
and and this became really clear to me at the uh you know when uh, later in the film when one of the bikers breaks in and uh forces her to commit fellatio on him and that that notably is one of the scenes that has no music behind it i want to talk about the music later but i mean maybe this is just characteristic of of ruffies in general perhaps but like i'm just like how was anyone really having a good time with this particular you know with a lot of the the, the things that are happening in this especially with such a brutal opening scene but at the same time i felt very empathetic to dusty and certain other characters as well like it was it was such an interesting experience to watch this film and to move through the brutality and just to feel like i I really want, I want the best for Dusty. You know, I really just maintain that empathy all the way through for some uh, reason I still haven't identified. Yeah, she seems like a very sweet person, though you don't really get to know her as a person too much because she's damaged goods from the beginning. And she really has problems after this. And John Holmes finds her in the forest, takes her back to his house, you know, kind of is kind of nursing the sick bird back to health type of a character, but then also not doing a very good job at that either because he's an artist. And before you know it, he's got his artist model and his assistant, I'm guessing. And they're just fucking like bunnies. And meanwhile, Dusty's downstairs. She comes up, sees it. And I'm thinking, oh, well, she's going to run out of the house because, you know, he's betraying her with these other women. No, she's into it. She's very, very into it. <laughs> That was a twist. <laughs> and I can't remember if that's the scene where she's masturbating and then ends up fisting herself to be able to, I don't know, have that amount of flexibility was pretty impressive to me. That performance is amazing. Really, really amazing. Award winning for whatever award you would give for the golden fist. <laughs> I don't mean to jump ahead either, but I know that the fisting scene that uh, she does with John um, she said that they had kind of faked that they had made it look very realistic. I think it looks realistic and it looks very painful. And, you know, she was still relatively new into her career too. when and that was kind of a lot to take on, not in the literal sense only, but it was just a lot to sort of delve into, you know, she was, Rhonda was probably in early twenties, you know, and, and very early twenties. And, uh, you know, this really did catapult her, as I said earlier on that, you know, I remember one time when I interviewed her and we were talking about it and, and she said, good old Rhonda. She was so they kind of knew that she would be game or they, that they could, you know, encourage her to sort of uh, participate in things that wouldn't have been her first choice. But as she did say, she was very sexually liberated, you know, and, and this was the 70s. But still, it was it was the rape scenes, as, as we highlighted, I found them very disturbing to watch in particular. So. I think she'd done Disco Lady first, and then this was kind of her feature, because I believe Jacobi had or Jacoby had worked on uh, Disco Lady, um, and then he kind of developed this this project with her in mind. And I forgot that it isn't even her watching John Holmes's Frankie with the two women. He gives the immortal line of "You two have fun. I'm going to go get a beer." And so it's just the two women and then Rhonda enjoying and watching on. And it's like, okay, good. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a big party at his house. Uh, so we get uh, cameo appearance 
possibly by Spalding Gray, definitely by Svetlana, who is uh, Jacoby's wife at the time, I believe. And boy, oh boy, is it wild. It's one of those 70s parties, man. <laughs> and that's really, you know, Rainy brought up the music. That's where the music really gets a spotlight here. My goodness. Yeah, the music is just so fascinating all the way through. I mean, I when I watched it the second time, I just made a note of like how much variation there is in this soundtrack. Because during the rape scene, there's this like prog funk kind of thing going on. Then there's like, I hadn't really, I don't know what this genre is. It moves into this uh, 70s version of big band jazz that kind of comes up throughout it. And then there's a harp and piano duet and a piano concerto. Like, it was mind-blowing. I don't watch that much porn, you know, and I haven't watched that much. But, like, this seemed like a real outlier in terms of, like, its adventurous soundtrack to my ears. I kept thinking, like, is this library music? Did they pull this from someplace? Where is Where are these songs coming from? Because, yeah, I want to say towards the end there's, like, a real strong like Hammond organ type of a song. And I'm like, what is happening here? Yeah. There's a lot of like Booker T riffing kind of like a few of those songs, which are just like, you know, this is just somebody going for Stax soul organ music for the rest of it. And I'm like, oh, I mean, I can't complain about that. You know, maybe you guys can tell me this because after the party, it's Frankie and Dusty, and they're driving down the road, and he just stops and kicks her out of the car. And I have no idea why he kicked her out of the car. So the bikers could chase her. Building plot, but I felt it was because the audio is not great in that scene, at least uh, when I had seen it originally, it wasn't. And I believe it's because Dusty is upset by his lifestyle. Because I, I think that scene followed the party. And so they're talking, but I couldn't really hear. And I, I believe he says, I'm tired of your shit. And he's like, but, but what brought that on? But I think it was probably, you know, I think it was, we were supposed to sort of assume, at least, or I assumed that she was not happy about his lifestyle. Because she did say to him one time when they were around the fire, have you ever fallen in love, Frankie? Uh, because she sees him, you know, with the women at the party and, of course, with his assistant and his model. And it's it's just Frankie's swing and 70s lifestyle. So I think that might be why he sort of let her out of the vehicle. And then, of course, motorcycles returned and he had to pick her up again. That's so funny. When he drives off and then all of a sudden the motorcycles just show up like she mentally called to them. And then he... What backs down the street? Really fast. <laughs> it's so funny, and I think it's all like one shot. Just like <laughs> car goes off, bikers show up, car comes back backwards. Yeah, <laughs> get in the car. But that next scene that followed, when uh, was that the one where they broke in and and Dusty was that was oh really hard to watch for me. <laughs> and I've seen it a few times, but I. Ooh. Just rough. I was hoping he was going to turn into straw dogs, especially because later on he shows her how to shoot. And I'm like, okay, great. This is going to be, you know, defending the artist's layer kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Nope. No. No. The main biker, God, is he so skeezy? Turkline is, yeah, it's a leader of the bikers. And he forces her to fillet him. And then I've never 
been sexually assaulted or obviously sexually assaulted anybody. So this whole idea of them, then him going down on her, you would do that as a rapist. This just seems very, very strange to me. And I could be completely off base. I mean, I don't know, you know, if that's something that would do. And then (laughs) there's that, that weird. So Frankie does come in and, and saves her. And he has this line, you may have come in a Gentile, but you're leaving a Jew. <laughs> That's lying in the movie. It's so amazing. I know. I laughed so hard when I first watched that. Who thought that up? Oh, boy. Unbelievable. It's wonderful. It telegraphed to me, like, when I wrote down at the very end uh, in my notes that I think this is really a template for an 80s action movie in so many ways because it's got these quips. Even this, like, that ridiculous car backing up, you know, scene, like, all of these are tropes, which, and I, I you know, I, I just did a lazy look at other 70s action films, and I think that there are, like, films that were, like, beginning to emerge with a lot of those tropes that were just, like, ubiquitous in the 80s where you've got like the beleaguered hero who's down and out and he's got a quip you know and from the burt reynolds world you know these are the kinds of things that i think were happening in the 70s but i don't think that the tropes were as strong now and so i think watching with hindsight i'm like god this is really basically an 80s action movie with a lot of fisting in it porn love to emulate real films, authentic films that was like, they made so many um, spinoffs of actual films. And so that kind of ties in with what you're saying, Rain. I think they kind of saw themselves as, or they would be inspired or rip off the ideas that they would see just watching, you know, um, you know, theatrical releases of, of A-list films and, and things of that nature. And they would just give them ideas, tons of fodder for all of the stuff that they pulled off of these and these adaptations of the authentic film, you know, they did it a lot. They did it a lot. And uh, just the whole Farrah Fawcett thing that we were talking about earlier. And I think as far as the sex scenes go and the, and the, what you were referring to, Mike, I, I know when you guys, if you've you know, seen films, there's always the obligatory scenes, right? You have to have, especially during that decade, um, you know, the guide girl, the, the girl, girl, then the, the, you know, the, the three way and, and the orgy scene. And, and so that's why it, it, it was very strange to see the biker performing oral sex on Dusty, but at the same time, they had to get that in there because they have to have so many combinations <laughs> of scenes. Um, and so that's, that's why it's really stuffed full of all, all of those scenes. I, I felt watching it is, uh, very thin on plot, big on sex scenes. <laughs> After the bikers attack, they get in a Winnebago and they leave and they go out to this ranch and they're there for a minute before they start fucking again. And it's like, wow, okay. There's also a really weirdly shot scene where Dusty and Frankie are on one side of the frame and there's nothing in the other side of the frame. And I just kept waiting for something to happen. I'm like, even to the point where I'm like, okay, well, is she going to shift? Are they going to lay down on this couch and start fucking there? Or is somebody going to come in or are they going to stand up and the camera will adjust? No, it's just this shot with them on one side of the frame and nothing on the other side of the frame. And I'm like, 
Okay. So I don't know if this is Jacoby like getting his bearings here. Maybe that's one of the things <laughs> that he shot because there wasn't sex in there. They quickly adjourn to a bedroom and that's where we get the third fisting scene. Well, the fake fisting of John Holmes with her. Cause I'm just like, my God, if John Holmes's penis is that big, I can't imagine how big his hands are. <laughs> he did have very large hands, but there was the nice intimate scene with them on the bed at the, at the before they went into the fisting scene later on, I think, and, and while they were at that other location, uh, which was a bit of a reprieve from the motorcycle and the gang stuff. You know, when you're watching these things, there's a bit of tension there, even though it's porn that uh, these guys are going to come after her again. You so, so you sort of felt there was, you know, that was a safe haven there. And it was a safe haven while they were there. I'm not even sure why they ever come back, but they end up coming back. She collapses in his kitchen. They find out that she, she's four months pregnant. As I was thinking, oh, this movie's going to tr- turn into straw dogs earlier. I'm like, oh, now it's going to turn into this huge melodrama about whose baby is it? And will she have the abortion? Won't they have the abortion? They end up getting married, I guess. And then he shows her how to handle a gun. And I love that John Holmes has absolutely perfect aim. You know, just... <laughs> He spent lots of time at the police academy practicing. <laughs> what he did, he hung out with the cops and all the time in practice. Pretty soon, as they're celebrating their marriage, uh, here comes the bikers again. And now it's, I would call this like a rape orgy, because these bikers are not welcome. There's some bondage going on. But I have to say, the most disturbing part of this is that while all of this raping is happening you get all of these moans and sounds being laid onto the soundtrack, which are just not diegetic whatsoever. It's an odd choice. And that, you know, I, I didn't mention this, the the opening scene, the opening at rape scene has so much dialogue, which at, I mean, at, at one point I'm like, is this like an Altman movie? What's going on here? Like everybody's talking. Like what I was trying to discern some of the things that people were saying and then thought better of that. It did make me wonder, is this something that was really diegetic or was this something that was ADR? It's like, all right, let's come in the studio and stand around and like mumble some stuff that you might say if you're doing this, you know, it just seemed very, very odd and, 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 uh, otherworldly in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and luckily, you know, Chekhov was right. We showed the gun, and then that's going to come back because Dusty's going to take care of some business and shoot that lead biker before all the rest of them go away, but not before they end up stabbing Frankie, right? I think he gets stabbed, and uh, the whole film ends with the wonderful line of, do me a favor, get your knee out of my nuts and call an ambulance. John gets to deliver it to the best, the only... <laughs> The two best lines in the whole film. It's so good. I know. It's it's just craziness. It's craziness. I'm not sure if I'm grateful for having seen this or not. It's definitely something that I haven't experienced before, and it's definitely something that you can't, well, I don't know if these days you can experience, but uh, after, what, 86, you couldn't experience films like this. You couldn't have somebody being having sex while they're tied up, especially being raped, have all this rape in here, have all this violence, and then have all this fisting. That was one of the reasons, so just going back to the original, that it it really does kind of set it apart, because you're not going to see that today, and and you wouldn't have, as we said, for several years, you wouldn't 
see anything like that today. It really seemed unnecessary, but I guess they're making those films for a certain type of audience and that I guess the goal was achieved for that aspect of it. But uh, it is what it is. Well, I would say today we're much more liberated, but even over the last few years, the porn market has shrunk as far as what's even able to be shown on things like Pornhub and X Hamster and some of these sites. It's like they would go through and just do purges of titles. And if anything had a quote unquote suspicious title, it's like all of a sudden all of the, um, the incest titles had to change to like, instead of mother, son, it's like stepmother or not mom. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. Like any sort of thing that had to do with um, hypnosis or mind control, all of those were wiped out. It was just bizarre. I mean, my, my favorites list just went down to nothing after that. When we were researching the first book, there was a loop that Holmes did called Big John and the Girl Scouts. So you actually have two girls. One was his girlfriend, one of his girlfriends in real life. They come to the door selling Girl Guide cookies. So that uh, got pulled and, you know, never to be seen again, you know, types of, of, of things that, uh, that they, yeah, like they got away with before porn became legal. I don't know if I ever said this on the show before, but two of the earliest porn loops that I watched were John Holmes' Swedish erotica loops. And I, one of them was basically him up in an apartment. He sees these two girls walking a dog down on the street and he just calls down to them. Hey, tie up your dog. Or it might be the opposite. It might have been the girls and then he's walking the dog because I do remember him tying up the dog and then giving one of these like, don't you move because it was all silent, which was great. And uh, the other one, I don't remember the premise of that, but I do think it was two girls, two guys and a guy was oh it must have been a breast it's a damn what rosebuds so it's like okay guys you want to watch tie up your dog or damn what rosebuds today wow all super eight you know the technology yeah it was fantastic yeah a lot of the swedish erotica was sub was just uh was there was no audio for a lot of or music they would just have music play you didn't hear any kind of dialogue at all i have no idea why my folks would even have those because it's not like they broke out the projector ever it's kind of weird all right let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to hear from Rhonda joe petty the one and only dusty herself and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons there's got to be a better way now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. 
second, a specially selected toy for him, and third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcasts catchers both android and ios there seems to be some confusion around did you do disco lady first or did you do little orphan dusty first disco lady and that's with i met bob jen what's his name at world i went there he was the first guy i went to to get jobs it was on van nuys boulevard bob jen was there that day and met me when i was just you know, signing up to do news. And so Bob got a hold of me and put me in Disco Lady, which was his film. And then Bob ended up with Jacob Jacoby somehow. I don't know that story. But then they got together with Little Orphan Dusty. So Bob got a hold of me for Little Orphan Dusty. 
because he liked me in Disco Lady. You are playing the titular role. How was that for you? It was rough. Well, the rape scene was rough. The fist scene was an issue. And I had a hard time saying no. But then I was with Jacob Jacoby. You know, he kept pressuring me about the this fucking scene. And I did a little bit, but it hurt so bad. I said, then he goes, well, what if we use the girl? I said, well, I'll try. And remember, this is only my second big movie. And this comes to me. I'm like a little blown away. So we ended up, she tried, but it was too painful. So we ended up like faking it. We shot it from above, like where my head is. And she made it look like her hand would go down and in. It got to that point that we had to fake it. Because after a few tries, oh, my God. He didn't even tell me about the fisting until I was on the set. So you can imagine what it was like for me to wrap my head around my first, second movie and this rape scene. Never done anything like this in my life. And just when we're on set with the motorcycle gang and every the rape scene, I was just like, I couldn't process it all. You know, it was too much to process. And that, that left me like, okay, I'll try. And then, oh, my God, are you kidding me? And then it just got down to we had to fake it. Are they shooting this film all in order? I only have a few memories of it. And the fisting, that day when we did the fisting scene and with the gang and all that, I remember that day. And then I remember meeting John. This is the first time I met John. And we were filming in this house. And we were sitting on the steps. And we were talking. We met, getting along. And I'm smoking a cigarette. And he goes, you shouldn't be smoking cigarettes. I'll never forget this. And he took my pack of cigarettes. And he had a briefcase. And he put them in his briefcase. And then later, you know, we shot like that for like a week, I think. And I noticed through the time of filming with John that he always carried a bottle of whiskey in his briefcase and he smoked. So really what he did, he took my cigarettes because he wanted to smoke them. (laughs) I mean, that was my first meeting with John, but we got along great. And this was during the time when John and me were not doing cocaine. There was no cocaine. And I just remember doing a couple of scenes with John, sex scenes. And you know what? That's all I remember about filming that movie. What do you remember about the sequel? Nothing. I don't remember anything about shooting Little Orphan Dusty 2. I must have been on cocaine then and whacked out. I don't know. And I think, too, I tend to like black things out. The big thing about Little Orphan Dusty 1 is when it came out, it got busted, right? All over the United States. It ended up in the newspaper because he advertised me as Farrah Fawcett. I did not know he was going to do that. I was just a young girl trying to make money with no skills, and I fell into this. I used my real name. I'll never forget doing a little disco lady, and I was walking off the set. I remember this. Bob Shin said to me, he goes, what name do you want to use, Rhonda? And I go, oh, Bob, just use my real name. I don't care because I didn't know. I didn't think any of this would get out anywhere. And then when I did Little Orphan Dusty, they used my real name. I didn't have a clue what I was getting involved in and what he was going to do with that film, that it ended up busted. And in newspapers, my dad, my family went berserk. And my dad found out, which led me, my dad called me one day. 
And he said, I'm going to break your arms and legs. How dare you do this and use the family name? So it was a big disrupt. That movie, and at that time, I just had met Rudy Gottesman. And when I got off the phone with my dad, I was friends with Ruby. And that's when I was doing a lot of cocaine. Ruby was always bringing cocaine over. So I fell to the floor after my dad called me. And I have to wrap my head around, oh, my God, it's in the newspapers. Oh, my God, this movie's been busted. Oh, my God, they advertised me as Farrah look lookalike. And my dad's going to come kill me. So I called Ruby. And Ruby said, Rhonda, don't worry. Long story short, don't worry. I said, I got to go hide out. So he rented me a place in Manhattan Beach, right on the water. And I laid low for a year or two there. I didn't work at all. I was hiding out, really, from my father, my family. I was so scared that that's what happened. And I got so blown up. I thought it'd be, you know, underground. I didn't know my name was going to be out there in newspapers. It scared me enough to let Ruby take care of me for two years. And we were doing a lot of cocaine. I didn't know Ruby was doing, he was trafficking X-rated tapes all over the country. And he was bootlegging them and taking them to Hawaii, all over the United States, you know, after two years there, it wasn't until the Fed showed up and I was pulling out in his car one day because he was gone and um, he had a little Mercedes and the feds pulled me over two blocks away from my house because they were looking for him. They got me and they opened up the trunk and there's all these tapes in the back of the car. <laughs> they start grabbing all the videotapes and then it kind of hit me. Oh, fuck. And they, they asked me, where's Ruby? I said, he flew out of here. He's not here right now. And they they let me go. They made me, they took the car, the videotapes, and I walked home. And then they finally caught him, and he ended up with 10 years in prison for the trafficking and bootlegging X-rated tapes over state lines. So he got 10 years. And that's when I had to go back to work. Do you remember what year that was when you went back to work? No, I don't. I remember, though, what I what I did, because Ruby went to prison, and I'm stuck in this place on the beach. I don't have him to support me anymore. I made a lot of friends in the neighborhood there. And this one kid, I, I had to go back to work. What was I going to do? I needed money. So he came over, and we talked. And I said, well, I know a producer. And I made a deal with him for two movies, $15,000, and a boob job, a lift. That was 3500 and that was Armin, or what was his, Freeway Films. He was like my uncle. And so we made a deal. I went back to work. And those movies were Sweet Dreams, Suzanne. We met, I made two of them for him with John Holmes. So those were the first movies I started back. And boy, I just started getting bigger from there. And it was about the money, Mike. It was about the money for me. Because I was separated from my family. You know, I had no skills. I only, I barely made it out of high school. My dad had me on motocross bikes for 15 years. I mean, that's all I knew and horses. So here I am, I'm making thousand a day offers, you know, thousand dollars a day for making films because a little orphan dusty. So I just got kept rolling and rolling in that and the money, I could not resist the money and I needed the money to live. So... It just went from there. I did it for 13 years. 
So Little Orphan Dusty 2, I don't remember filming at all. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's understandable, but it's got to be weird to have these big gaps in your memory like that. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people know because of my uh, interview with the Rialto Report that as a child, I went through a really abusive situation with my father. Tremendous abuse, mentally, physically, emotionally. It was intense. So, you know, as a child growing up, I, I blacked out a lot of things. And I think being in the porn industry and making films, I think I did that a lot. I would just black things out. And of course, that was 40 years ago. And yes, it, it, it bothers me at times that I can't. So many people have such great memories. And I have this memory of just pure blackout. Now, I remember doing Sweet Cream Suzanne with John Holmes. We did those for Armin for Freeway Films. And his niece, Susan, I was a really good friend of Susan. So we did those two films. Within two weeks, me and John both had an ounce of cocaine each. And we did that cocaine for two weeks straight and shot those two films in two weeks. By the end of the shoot, all I can remember is I was so wiped out, they had to put me in a chair and put a mask over my face. I'll never forget that because I couldn't function. I was so two weeks of working 24-7 and being on cocaine that whole time. I do remember that. And I remember doing the cocaine with John and that's us each having an out. Oh, my God. No, it does bother me that I can't remember everything. It does. And I don't think it's just because it was 40 years ago. It's just the way my brain functions. There's a lot of parts of my life I don't remember. And it, it's hard a little bit, but I've learned to just accept it. You know, that that's just the way sometimes I guess I deal with things. When it's traumatic for me, I black out a lot of stuff. This is what it is. I talk with some actors and actresses, and they tend to refer to porn as, as basically like their family. But it doesn't necessarily sound like you had that same experience. It doesn't sound like these folks became your extended family. Well, you know what? They did. Like Susan. I lived with Susan for six months. And of course, her uncle that owned Freeway Films, he was like an uncle to me. She was like a sister to me. I lived with her for six months and John Holmes lived there too because she had an affair with John Holmes. And then there was all all the other girls, Susie De Niro. I mean, all those girls. We were good friends, and when I moved back east to work in New York because I wanted to get out of L.A. because it was getting too hot, and I found out back east, they would book me to go to shows and appear, make appearances, and I was tired of making movies, and L.A. was getting so hot, and everybody was getting arrested. New York didn't give a fuck, and I took with me, who was living with me at the time, was Danielle. She was gorgeous. So she lived with me in Northridge. And I told her, I kind of helped her step into the business. We became really good buddies. We lived together. And I told her, I said, uh, Danielle, do you want to go with me to New York? We can get out of L.A. And we can, I got a manager that will put us on the road. And you make an appearances for a week at a, at a club, get paid really good money. And you don't, you know, we've made enough films. I don't want to keep making films and I don't want to stay in L.A. So I got her. We both went to New York. So she was a good friend. And in New York, Susie Nero 
I'm not really saying her name right. I'm having a real hard time with names today, but I was friends with her. I'll never forget her little apartment. Um, no, all those people, I mean, like Howie, Gordon, all of them were, you know, we still get together to this day and they're such a great group of people. And when we all, when anytime we worked together, there was always so much respect and we were good friends. We knew what we were doing. It was great. And like I'm saying, I still talk to Seika today. You know, it was a great, it was something that you'll never, it was magical to have those people together because we all got along so good. It's not like we hung out together all the time, but when we were together, I mean, we just loved each other. It was a great group of people. You know, it's magical that you could get a group of people together like that. And we got along so great and we still care about our, each other today. No, they were my family. They And like uh, Gloria Leonard and her husband, um, but Gloria Leonard, when they were doing the video series, when video came out, I mean, she was like a mother to me. I'd go hang at their house. I was doing their videos when, you know, video came out. I came, became so close with them. And then she moved back to New York. And when I moved to New York, we'd hang out together. She was such a good friend of mine. And always watched over me. So, no, that's what it was like with all of us. We were really there for each other. There was never anybody in that group where there was a fight or disagreement. You're not going to find that today. You know, if I call on Howie, Howie's going to be there for me. They all would. And I still talk to this. I, on Facebook, of course, we all stay in touch. I mean, Facebook now. It was a great, that was my family back then, very much so. Do you have any pleasant memories of the work? It was rough. It was hard work because when I went to do the shows, the appearances in nightclubs and that, strip bars, some of the places were really nice. Some were really disgusting. I was making like 5000 a week. And then I did Polaroids, $5 each with everybody. I did five shows a day, six days a week. And I flew out on Sundays to my next gig. It was hard work, very exhausting work. The money was good. And I just, I tended to be a workhorse. You know, I'm a workaholic. So that's all I can say about it. It, it was hard work, you know, going to this job, that job, making a film on the side, doing a shoot. The last movie I made when I decided to quit the business was Satisfactions. And they flew me from New York out to San Francisco to make that movie. And I think uh, Ron Jeremy's in that movie. That was a big movie of mine, Satisfaction. That was the last film I made. But you know what? I loved it too because I was a major alcoholic back then and I was working at clubs that had alcohol. So I just, and I was young, doing cocaine, drinking almost 24-7, be back by noon the next day and they always had a bitters and soda for me because they knew I was hung over and so but I did have fun too because I would take like I would work for like two months straight and then I'd take like two or three weeks off and I'd go down to the Bahamas and relax so you know the lifestyle was I enjoyed it you know I loved to shop I loved clothes I could go to the Bahamas. I was making such great money, but the work was very hard. It was hard work, but I was very capable of doing it. And I did it drunk the whole time. <laughs> I can't. But after 13 years, 
it was, I was just burnt out. I had a major meltdown. And that's when I had to say, I'm done. And I went back to California and with my family, they had open doors for me. So you reconciled? Oh, yeah. My mom and my sister, even while I was in it, they were always had an open door for me. My dad, uh, he, me and him didn't really reconcile until I got married and I had kids and I had a big horse ranch. That's when my dad started coming back in my life. He was proud of me that I quit and I was married and I had all, you know, grandkids for him and all that. We had a good relationship after that. But I'm telling you, it was that movie, Little Orphan Dusty, that blew me out of the water. You know, and it made my name. That was the movie. Because Disco Lady didn't, you know, the only reason people watched Disco Lady was because of Little Orphan Dusty. And then, of course, you know, there was the lawsuit with Jacob Jacoby and Farrah Fawcett. She tried to sue him for using her image on that film, Little Orphan Dusty. And the original poster... They changed it. The original had the motorcycles on the top. And the reason that film also got busted is because of the rape scene. That was so illegal and just bad. He was asking for it. And so they changed the poster from the motorcycle. They put a limo on the poster after there was, you know, hiccups about the rape scene. Because, you know, back then that was a big no-no. So the original poster had the motorcycle gang up in the right-hand corner of the poster. And then when there was so much riff about it, he changed the, the next poster. He put the limousine on it. Yeah, Little Orphan Dusty, what merely made a change in my life. And what happened? Once you got out of the business, what did you do? I went and stayed with my sister. And I had had a really major nervous breakdown. So I was still struggling physically, mentally. I totally quit drinking, off drugs, everything. And I went to um, beauty school and I got a manicure license. And so I started doing nails in Encino. My sister lives, at that time she lived up by Malibu. And I lived with her for two years. And then she introduced me to my husband. And how they knew him is my sister's husband makes, um, he owns Western saws. They make saw blades, right? And my husband, was an engineer that did carbide, carbide tooling and sold carbide. And so he had just gotten divorced and they knew him and they brought him over one day. And, you know, at that point, living with my sister for two years and I was doing nails, I was just trying to get myself stable again, you know, after 13 years of trying to kill myself. And they brought him over one day and I was at that point, I didn't want anything to do with men, nothing. And he walked through the backyard. I was sitting in the backyard. And I knew what they were up to. They introduced me to him and he tried to get me. It took him like two months to get me to go out on a date. So on, so on. And then we fell in love. We got married. I moved to Riverside with him because that's where he's from. We bought a big ranch, a big property. And I ended up building a big horse ranch, having two children. And then I raised his two children. And that was my life from 89 on until we got divorced. Well, I just found out I'm really not divorced. I'm still dealing with my divorce, which started in 2012. I raised horses for 26 years. I was so into that and being a mom and showing horses and breeding them. And I'm helping my husband, of course, with the carbide business. We had a huge corporation. 
so that's what I was, I have been doing the last 30 years. And I've been going through divorce since 2012. And I just hired a new attorney because everything wasn't resolved yet. And I just found out with a new attorney, I'm not really divorced, my old attorney. <laughs> oh, my God. As life goes on for me, I'm telling you. But that's what I've been doing since I quit. Two years doing nails and getting married, having kids. And I loved it. I love being a mother. I love my kids. And I got grandkids now. So. It's, I've had a good life. I've had a good life. Rhonda, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Well, Mike, thank you. And, you know, I don't do a lot of I- interviews because I don't like to saturate my name. You know what I mean? I, and, of course, I love Bob Shan and Jill. She's been like a mother to me since she started writing Golden Goddesses. You know, she's seen me go through a lot, and she's always so there for me. So I love her to death wonderful woman. Okay, well, this was nice, and I really appreciate it. And we were talking about Little Orphan Dusty. And like all good movies, there was a sequel to this one, which no Frankie in this. I guess they didn't stay together or something. But this was 1981. And Rhonda Joe reprises her role as Dusty. And then Eric Edwards is in this, though they misspell his real name in the opening credits. <laughs> Yes, Rob Everett. Everett. Everett, yes. I think they correct it by the time they get to the end credits. Um. <laughs> Name change in the in the course of a film. And to your point, Rain, this has at least four original songs on the soundtrack. So it's I uh, was so excited to see music credits in the opening. And I've gotta say, I have had the Little Orphan Dusty theme song in my head all week long. Really? Oh, yeah, that's cool. I might have to cover it. Who knows? And this one is very heavy on plot because we have a whole murder mystery going on in this. It's wonderful. This whole idea of Dusty and her what her past was, because, you know, obviously she is an orphan and she does like to say that very often, mostly unprompted. She'll just come out of nowhere and say, I'm an orphan. But this starts with a gun. And so I was like, oh, okay, it's Frankie's back. And maybe he, you know, wants to take care of something. I don't know. Maybe he's mad at Dusty because she's having sex with this guy, David, who's a fellow orphan from the orphanage. But no, it's this other guy. And Dusty has an obsession in this movie with Alex Haley's roots. Mentioned twice. <laughs> mentioned twice the, she just gets done boning david and stands up and says have you seen root or have you read roots <laughs> oh it's fantastic yeah. i didn't get that she turns on the tv and sees the anna harris character 
and says, God, she's beautiful, because then later on we actually find out that, spoilers, Anna Harris is her biological mother. And there's this whole thing. I mean, this is a this is a soap opera to beat all soap operas. I didn't know that this film existed. I didn't know they did a part two. But what I like about this is I really like Eric Edwards. He's great. So I think he's he and this is the best part of the of the film by far. And it is much more character development, much more plot development. So it makes it, I think, a lot more palatable to watch for those reasons. Um, that's that's sort, sort of how I felt about it. A few little twists and turns there. And uh, yeah, it was it was enjoyable. I found it enjoyable overall. It's definitely leaps and bounds, I think, more advanced, it feels like. And it, and it really informed rewatching the first one again in so many ways, you know, and to the to the extent that, like, they're really merged in my head. I can't separate them. I was like, oh, is she, is she really an orphan? You know, like when she's like confessing to John Holmes that she's an orphan, he's like, oh, yeah, babe, I'm an orphan, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was that where she started talking about roots? I was very, very muddled in, in my in my thinking. But it, I think it really just speaks to, I mean, it's not, you know, the most spectacular acting in the world, but I think it really just speaks to how believable I found the Dusty character, how coherent I felt the Dusty character between the two films. I think because Rhonda's got a little bit of a Texas accent, some of her line deliveries reminded me a little bit of Anna Nicole Smith's line deliveries. Yes. Yes. I love Rhonda, but she's maybe not the best actress in the world at this point in her career. So some of those line readings, I was just like, wow. I just kept thinking of that skyscraper movie with uh, Anna Nicole Smith. And there's this amazing outtakes video where she just keeps screwing up the lines. And some of that cadence was very similar to me. I'm heading eastbound, leaving your airspace. I'm heading eastbound. Leaving your airspace. Leaving your airspace. I'm headed eastbound, leaving your airspace. I'm heading eastbound, leaving your hair. But it was good when she was acting against uh, Eric Edwards, and you do get, you know, because he is a well-trained actor, and so he really helps carry those scenes so well. So he's kind of her rescuer. And this one, he is a detective who is protecting her because she has had these pot shots taken against her while she was driving away from David's house, I suppose. And we get to see she's now a nurse. And you can tell because she's wearing a nurse hat. And her nurse co-worker doesn't seem to give a shit about her. And then all of a sudden cut to her on a couch and she's talking to a guy who I can only assume is her psychiatrist. That was, <laughs> but that it was, was quite a leap. It was very tough. I think at one point she refers to Dr. So-and-so and I'm like, okay, I guess that's her therapist, but yeah. he's the one who says, I'll get the detective. I'll get Eric Edwards in here and he will, take care of you. So he both is the investigator of trying to find more about Dusty's parents, as well as the protector and takes her to a houseboat where of course they bone. And he is saving her from this madman with a gun who we find out is trying to marry this Anna Harris actress and get all of her money. And I guess he must know that 
Dusty is the rightful heir as the as Dusty is finding out that she is this woman's daughter because he wants to marry her, wants to marry Anna, get all the money and then murder her. And he's in cahoots with the housekeeper who's dressed as a French maid, Gretchen, uh, like you do. And of course, they come back, you know, all of this stuff comes back together at a, I guess it's a announcement of their wedding uh, that's going to happen. And there's a huge orgy at the house. So again, we get the orgy and then we have the whole basically Agatha Christie reveal type of thing. But luckily, we got the cops there to handcuff the baddies and take them away. And Dusty is... uh Go, and now has a mother and now has a new boyfriend that she's going to live with. No talk of marriage, I don't think, but they will definitely be living together, which I think in these films is just as good. I don't know if the divorce from Frankie is finalized or not. See, that was the part that threw me because I thought, did Frankie perhaps die? And what happened to the baby? Which I think had to have been Frankie's baby, not not the lead motorcycle guy, because uh, they somebody had made a comment. I was talking to somebody about it who had seen it too, and they said yes. But in, in the films, they always ejaculate outside. So right. I would think Frankie perhaps was the father. But what happened to that baby? Maybe she lost the baby. And I'm thinking Frankie died. That was my mind. I thought, okay, now we're starting again, and she's uh, she's starting anew. You know, she's she's obviously gone to school. She's she's studied to become a nurse. Because it's four years between the two films, or three years between the two films, right? So lots happened in Dusty's life in that time frame. Do the lyrics of the songs shed any light onto that? Is there any sort of backstory of what, what's been going on in Dusty's life? It's more of an aspirational kind of song, little orphan Dusty. Like you, you're you're on your way. Like there's like this. It's it's almost like a Mary Tyler Moore, like Laverne and Shirley kind of it's the work that it's doing, you know, that the song is doing. It's, it's not really talking about the, 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 you know, the tragedies at all. I mean, it's just this very like uplifting, um, you know, like light anthem, you know, about what Dusty is and can do, you know? So it's like, it's just, again, it's such a bizarre experience to come into a film like this and, and, you know, and and just, I mean, it might as well be singing tomorrow. I, I think I'm just talking myself into having to learn, learn that song and, and really record it. Because, I, you know, uh, hopefully the entire song is in there. I know that more of it plays over the end credits than the beginning credits. I wrote down the, the, the name of the, uh, I don't have it here, though, whoever wrote that title song. Uh, oh, Sue, Sue Peters. Peters, I think it means. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Sue Peters is credited for three of the four songs, and I can't remember who the fourth one was. But I did go out and look for a 45, and nothing was coming up on Discogs, unfortunately. I did want to just uh, address one thing real quick. So as I was looking up Little Orphan Dusty, I kept running across Little Orphan Sammy as well from 1977, which I think might be a little bit more in line with Annie because one of the characters' names is Daddy Sawbucks. It's got quite a cast. Jennifer Wells, oh. Jamie Gillis, Kim Pope, 
And it was written by uh, Ron Wortham, who we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about um, Memories Within Miss Aggie. He was the writer of that. So I think I'm going to have to track this one down. Yeah, that was probably made on the East Coast, I'm guessing, if Jamie Gillis was in that and Jennifer Wells. I think so, too. That was, uh, who was it? Don Waters was the director of that one? Mm. Walters? Don Walters, yeah. I just think it's so fascinating that they both end with these marriage things, which are, you know, again, like it doesn't seem like something you're wanting out of your hardcore films. And so, like, you know, I was like, is is this actually just like the hardcore version of those torrid pulp romances that I'd sometimes read when I was younger, you know, or, you know, these kinds of things that almost always ended in like these like you know, marriage and connection and like these kinds of things, but still had like all this like torrid, like, you know, dangerous, you know, dangerous situations and like, well, you know, like all the adventure and, and stuff that gets you all like hot and bothered. I really want to know why this was the note that each of them moves towards each of these films moves towards. It's so fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting too, given, given the lifestyles of the characters. So they're these free swinging people, you know, that are, 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 you know, completely comfortable with the orgies. And and yet at the end, I guess they're just looking for that certain someone that they want to settle with for the rest of their lives, which doesn't really tie in with, with what we, you know, what is revealed about, I guess, the lifestyle of, of, of the characters or the lifestyles of the characters in these films. Uh, I don't know. I guess porn was, was not that different than, uh, I guess real life films, you know, always having to have that happy ending. A lot of them would go that route. I mean, they are all about the happy ending, right? Yeah. All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, an important announcement from the management of this theater. Shut up and listen. If you like Deep Throat and Singing in the Rain, you're going to love Blonde Ambition, the most important American film since Earthquake. Can two no-talent broads take Coyote Fang, Wyoming by storm and make it to the top? They sing, they dance, they tap their tits off. The Kane sisters bring new meaning to the words bad taste. Starring in stag films, uh, I mean uh, specialized art films, our heroines perfect their craft in a series of cinematic gems. Culminating in the wreck of an American classic. Sugar and candy turn GWTW into a mass of tits and ass. The Yankees are coming! The Yankees are coming! Ah! Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Blonde Ambition stars from England, Susie Mandel, and Dory Devon, plus from America, Wade Parker and George Payne. And others too fabulous to mention. See Beauty Beyond Belief. A nice extravaganza that would stupefy Sonia Henny. Thrilled to erotic interludes that arouse the imagination and defy description. And the censor! Only a movie as outrageous as Blonde Ambition could take you from the dignity of the Buckingham estate to a drag ball at the notorious Club Pits. Blonde Ambition is a class act. Blonde Ambition is a riot. Step by step up the ladder to success. Nothing can bar the Kane sisters from their ultimate goal. The top at last. 
married to millionaires and starring in their very own nightclub, the girls prove that hard work and clean living will get you absolutely nowhere. True, cafe society was not prepared for their unorthodox rise to stardom. But if they can't take a joke, fuck them. Blonde Ambition, the movie. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at John Amaro's Blonde Ambition. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jill and Rain. So, Rain, what is happening in your world lately? Well, I just uh, just recorded an EP with my band, Santa Labrada, uh, which I'm very excited about. We'd been stalled because of the pandemic, and so we finally went in and recorded some songs, and uh, hopefully that'll be out a little later this year, maybe this summer. I just got news that I got some grant funding for a performance project that's going to be happening later on this year. I can't advertise about it too much yet, but I'm very excited about that. So uh, follow my website. That's where uh, you'll also be able to see links to all of my writing, my tarot column and my writings for the art magazine, Be More Art and all these other things. So my website, rain.com, R-A-H-N-E.com. And Jill, how the heck have you been and what have you been up to? Well, actually, I'm working. I've been, I've been working all through my writing. So I've been working 41 years in the same career. I work three days a week and I assess hearing and I dispense hearing devices. My last writing project um, was released in 2017. And it was a memoir, a travel memoir called uh, Tapes from California Teenage Road Trip in 1976 about a hitchhiking, uh, hosteling road trip. I went on with one of my best friends in 1976 for six months. Uh, down to California, you know, west of BC and, and things like that. I am going to be scaling back my work hours next year. So I hope to get back into writing. I'd really like to get back into some writing. Those books really took a lot out of me. It was a lot of work for a lot of years. And I just really felt that I needed a break after the, the memoir came out. So, um, but I am, as I said, I am excited to 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 get into writing and, and maybe get back into some art. I like to sketch too, and I'm interested in photography. So pursue those pursuits. Wow. I'm on the line with a couple of very talented female artists and writers and geez, you guys make me look like a slacker. No. <laughs> Your production schedule tells a difference. Yeah. <laughs> You're busy, busy, busy. Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Kiss me again, Mr. Perry. With pleasure, Mrs. Perry. 